0: We'll pray and then we'll read our passage. Father, we come before you um, just worshiping you, giving you thanks for what you have done on our behalf. We thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, to live the perfect life, uh, to make the perfect sacrifice that we might have life in you. And we thank you for the word that you've given us that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We ask, Lord, that as we approach uh, your holy word this morning, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the the text, that we would um, understand what it is that was said and how it applies to us this day. We ask, Lord, that you would grow our confidence in you, grow our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to develop um, an intimacy with you that we have yet to experience. We do love you, and we ask for your help now. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So this Saturday we have the baptism. And s- somehow I stumbled across, <clears throat> sort of in my research for this, this uh, looking for an illustration, in my, my research looking for an illustration in, in light of the, the baptism, a, a, an article caught my attention from five years ago. It was an article that was written in, mission network news back in 2012 and as uh the church is is growing in some more of the hostile parts of the world they're realizing um, that they have to do some equipping of those who want to get baptized to realize uh kind of like a maybe like a full disclosure uh of what they're getting themselves into and to help them prepare before they um, sort of proceed, before the consequences are irreversible. And so this is the article. It deals with seven questions that they, they, they ask those that want to be baptized. Asian Access, or A2, a Christian missions agency in South Asia, listed a series of questions that some church planters have been asking new believers who are considering baptism. Due to safety concerns, Asian access does not mention the country's name. The country is predominantly Hindu, but over the past few decades, Christianity has grown in popularity, especially among poor and tribal peoples. The following seven questions serve as a reality check for what new followers of Jesus might experience if they decide to, quote-unquote, go public with their decision to follow Christ? Um, as I read these questions, I am I'm not sure what feelings I'm feeling. Uh, other than I realize that none of these questions are questions that I am asking anyone who's getting baptized or going to the baptism class. It's a sobering reminder of um, how easy we as Americans have it. And I don't know if that's a good thing for our faith. So question number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Question number two, are you willing to lose your job? Question number three, are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Question number four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Question number five, are you willing to be beaten rather than to deny your faith? Question six, are you willing to go to prison? Did I say that one already? I don't know if I, at first service I said it. That's why it sounds familiar. Question number six, are you willing to go to prison? Question number seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? Uh, these, they continue, this, these seven questions serve as a sobering reminder for all Christians from every continent of what it might cost us to follow Jesus. These questions also help Western Christians identify with the threats faced by our brothers and sisters from other countries as they seek to follow Christ. Um, I first off, as I read this, I, I'll never forget a man I have no idea what his name is, but he was a man I saw uh, speak at a church probably fifteen to 20 years ago. He was from Sudan. And he'd shared his story with us. I've shared this a number of times, but uh, he, he was a man that was a believer and his mother was a believer. And he tells the story of growing up every morning before school, his mom would gather the children and she would pray for them with tears that they would be able to make it school and, and to return home without being killed. He said he remembered going to the school and often uh having to kind of hop, skip, and jump over bodies that had, had been sort of caught in the line of fire. All of that stood out to me, but the thing that got my attention the most was at the very end. He he appeared to be a short little guy and and what what I describe as like African African black, like really, really dark skin. But he had this huge smile. And all I remember was this bright white smile beaming out. And he looked at the audience of a few thousand people. And he said, you know, I come here often to share my story. And every time I come, you Americans want to pray for our safety in Sudan. And he said, I appreciate the the gesture. But the reality is, is that Christians in Sudan are praying that Americans would be able to experience the glory and beauty of the persecution we face because there's a joy within it that you'll never know uh, living how you guys live. And I get like goosebumps like I'm like I don't pray that prayer like I don't, like I like it's a, you have a beautiful testimony and it's wonderful what the Lord did in your life. I don't, I don't. I'm good going to Starbucks and like you know and and uh but the reason I bring this up is these seven questions shed insight onto the background of what these followers of the Messiah Yeshua and Hebrews were dealing with. We're going to see next week. I think we'll get to it. We'll, we'll see that they were their 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 properties were being seized, but they had a greater possession in heaven. It, it sounds beautiful in the text, but the reality, which, which means, is They were having their, everything was confiscated. They were being beaten. Hebrews 11 tells us that some of them were being cut in half. They were being thrown in jails. There was severe persecution. And so the things that we're about to enter into... When we read these things in light of these are brothers and sisters in Christ who lived a couple thousand years before us, but they were experiencing horrible things. And this in many ways is an, an encouragement to them to hold fast. Well, with that, let's start with the very first word of verse 19, therefore. This therefore is not like the other therefores that we've seen in this book, in this in, in this letter of Hebrews, we've seen a number of therefores. We've seen a number of fours. There's uh, F-O-R, not the number. These thoughts that connect to the previous thoughts. Um, this therefore, for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, this is on par with Romans 12.1. It's it's the fulcrum of the 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 letter or the the book this therefore is the largest therefore of of all of therefores in hebrews he's saying therefore in light of everything that i've said up to this point all of that hard stuff that you've been reading all of that hard stuff you've been trying to process in light of all of that stuff i'm about to say some things we move from application in large or doctrine in large part to application in large part he began his letter in chapter 1 verse 1 and he said in the past god spoke in various ways a manifold of ways multifaceted all sorts of ways god spoke in the past this is but now god is speaking to us through his son jesus and from that statement he spends Ten, maybe nine and a half chapters arguing, explaining, teaching the greatness of Jesus over everything doctrine, mind, what we think. As I go through the New Testament, as I go God cares about what we think about. What we think results in how we behave. And God is more concerned that our behavior is grounded in appropriate biblical knowledge. Uh, the, 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 how you act is secondary to the knowledge. The actions can look the same, but if your actions are good, but they're grounded in poor theology, it's a dangerous game. Especially if you're trying to earn your salvation, which is so easy for us to fall into. So he's made his case, therefore, I think he's going to summarize the first ten chapters in these um, first three verses. To give you a bit of an outline of our section today, there are two senses. I don't know how you guys say sense, S-I-N-C-E, plural. Senses, not senses, senses. There are two senses, or there are, sense is used two times. These are, there are two truths that encapsulate the whole that he's discussed, the kind of the Cliff Notes version, to help us know what he said. And then there are three lettuces. Uh, <laughs> it's actually this week I learned that Hebrews is often referred to as the vegetable book. So not lettuce like that you eat in a salad, but let us, L-E-T space U-S, let us is used three times. So from the two senses that are used, from those truths, I almost think for the rest of the book of Hebrews, we need to keep verses 19 through 21 in, in, in our brains because from those truths is where the application is launching from. So I don't think it would be wrong for us to go back every week to remind ourselves of these three verses to say these two truths. So therefore, the next word is brethren, which I love about this book, this He's recognizing that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are united through Jesus. He is the pastor preaching, but he includes himself virtually throughout the book that led us, us. He's including himself. I'm just a, a, a follower of Christ who happened to be called to this gift of pastor teacher, but I am just one of us. All of these things apply to me first and foremost, and then from that I teach. I am not over you guys, I am just with you guys and it's, I've been blessed with this privilege of, of expounding upon the word of God. So he says, therefore brethren, since, number one, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. A lot is said here, and I've wrestled with how to best articulate it. Um, Almost working backwards, we start with his flesh. Uh, We see his flesh at the very end of verse 19. We see by the blood of Jesus. So Jesus' sacrifice, the author has made it clear once and for all, sufficient, final, what Jesus did on the cross. Is greater than any sacrifice that could be made, and so we're told by the blood of Jesus, we now have access through this veil. Now, the the, the mind the picture that they would have had in their mind is we ha- we have the the tabernacle, the sort of the the temporary one that we looked at a few weeks ago, where it's a sort of a tent with two rooms, and the first room the priest had access. If you were not a priest, you would not have access to this room. This is where the actual sacrifices were offered. And then you had the second compartment, which was the holiest of holies, and only the high priest, and only once a year, could enter in there to to make a a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And so now we're told that through his, by his flesh, by his blood, we now have access beyond that veil in the temple, we don't really know. I, I remember going through Matthew and sort of studying this when we read on the cross when the, the veil, we're told, was torn from from heaven to the bottom. I don't know. In my mind, I kind of have like an Ikea curtain, you know? <laughs> like, because I can tear the curtain like that maybe, maybe a couple years ago. Um I think it's like there's those guys. I don't even know what the ministry is, but those guys like rip telephone books in, in place. Like it's estimated that that, that curtain at, at the veil at the temple, not the not the tabernacle, they think it was like three to four inches thick. Like super. Like this is a huge veil. It would be unthinkable to cross in. And so he says by his blood there's 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 access to enter in. He says through his blood not only is there access to go in he 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 inaugurated something new that that the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant and the new covenant is different from the old covenant Uh, we see midway through verse 20 by a new and living way see the sacrifice that was made is not dead jesus raised from the grave I think of Romans 12.1 that says, a brother and I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your living sacrifice. So, so we're asked to offer our bodies alive to be used for him. No, no longer is their sacrifice for sin. But, but here, the sacrifice is alive. It's this living way. And so the truth, truth number one, we have confidence to enter in. I'm, I'm not saying that the people had the confidence to enter in. I'm just saying the truth that we're told is the death of Jesus on the cross was sufficient for your sins. You are washed white as snow. You are clean. You have access. And not to the the holiest of holies on earth that was just a mere shadow, a pattern. We have access to the holy of holies in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So the second sense is verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have this great high priest, the right hand of the Father, that is over the Father's house. I I struggle with knowing if I want to press forward or pause here. I think I'm going to press forward this time. I did it the other way. uh, I'm going to cheat ahead a little bit. So we go into verse 21, uh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 21, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, so we, we, we eased a little bit forward because I wanted to show you that this paragraph is almost, it's already been given to us almost identically early on. And so if you'll go back with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe that as the author, by the Spirit of God, was was penning this out, he'd made his case, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, as, as the guy who's been up here teaching, I feel like we've been following, we followed along pretty well for those first uh, four and a half chapters. Then chapters five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten got a little bit more difficult to sort of follow along because we're not Jews living during that time while the temple's going on. I, I think we had to stretch and really put on our Jewish thinking cap to, to help understand what was said there. But at the very end of chapter 4, starting at verse 14, he writes, and as I read this, I want you to remember what we just read to hear the similarities. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's it's a beautiful passage. This is, Hebrews I've learned is one of these books that all Christians know about four sections of them. And there are these beautiful, powerful verses that we cling to. And then the stuff sort of surrounding them, we're like, ah, Jesus is greater. We know that. Um, so he gets to this point, he says this, he mentions this high priest, and this high priest isn't like the priests that are on earth, this is a, this is a high priest who came, he was tempted and tried in every way as you were, but he was without sin, but you who are sinner who struggle with things, you can go to this high priest and you can confide in him, you can confess to him, you can seek his help, and we're told that he sympathizes with what you're going through, because even though he didn't, faced the same temptation from a sinful body. He did go through true temptation. He just didn't execute it. And I don't think that it, 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 it's a very hard case to make, That I think that it's more difficult to be tempted and not to sin than to be tempted and then to sin. To be tempted and to sin, that's a weaker, that's a, you quit. Uh, you, you, your ability broke. So what Jesus went through was actually way worse than we went through because he, 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 he was able to endure without sinning as a man. This, then we get into a great theological argument, but I don't want to get into it right now. Uh, but, but I believe Jesus in his humanity, he, he was tempted in every way that we were. And so now we have this high priest and we're told to enter in. We're told to, to approach him. And at the mention of the high priest, the author of Hebrews says, I need, to start a, I need to help unscramble their thinking about the priesthood. And so he spends chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, the last part of 10, unscrambling their thinking about the priest. And we learned about Melchizedek and, and the, the Levite priestly order. And we were told that Jesus is a, a priest, not of the order of Aaron and Levite, but he's an order of Melchizedek. He's the priest of a new covenant, a greater covenant. The sacrifice that he made was greater than the sacrifice that the priest had to make over and over and over again. And so because of these truths, that because of his sacrifice, we have access since number one we have confidence to access the holiest of holies. And point number two, we have this great high priest that's governing the affairs of the house of God. Let us, let us, let us do these three things. Verse 22, without a doubt, is the key verse in all of Hebrews. This is the point that he's trying to make. So he's going to kind of regurgitate what he says in verse 19, but verse 19 is the truth. Now, verse 21 is the um, is the instruction, the command to do it. Um, you you have strong commands. Um, there are commands without talking, Then you have softer commands that have the same force. So, a harsh command we would call an imperative. Be on the alert, right? Do this. Then what we would have is called a subjective horatory, which you guys don't need to remember that or know this. It's 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 a command, but it's kind of like, hey, please, guys, let's. Please, I urge you by the mercies of God, like let's let's do these things. It's a command that's that's softer, gentler. He says, "Let us draw near." Since you have confidence because of what he's done, let's go ahead and do it. Go ahead and enter into the East of holies. Uh, uh, dr- draw near into the presence of God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That reminds me back of the doctrine that we learned back in Hebrews 9.14. Remember, the blood of uh, goats and bulls can only cleanse you externally and only for a little while. But the blood of Jesus can cleanse to the deepest innermost person of who you are, your conscience. And so, because of His offering, because of His sacrifice, we've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. I've really enjoyed. Like I, I think I've mentioned Michael Nichols a bunch going through Hebrews, but Michael Nichols is a missionary we support, in in Africa is in Tanzania. He is not a pastor. He is a, a, a linguist, brilliant man with language. And when he, they went to, they've been in Africa for probably 10 years now. And in the first couple of years, he started getting really sick and he got brucellosis. And during that window of trying to identify what was wrong with his body, I, I, the list is too long of all of the other things that he got along the way. But during this window, I remember him sharing that he, 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 he told Kelly he's like Kelly I don't think I'm going to live to 40 I think I think I'm dying and so he couldn't like he was like bedridden for for long stretches and during that window he was he was compelled to he really wanted to draw closer to God and so he felt that the best way that he could do that would be to memorize Hebrews of course because that's how smart he is I'm just gonna memorize. I've never said I'm just gonna memorize Hebrews and so then, as his quest to, to to memorize Hebrews, he decided that the best way to do that was to compose Hebrews into thirteen songs, because if he could sing them, then he could memorize them. and he did that and and as I started um, as I started going into Hebrews, I asked him, i said, "Hey Michael, can you can you, can you share them with me? Can I get the thirteen songs i I promise you, I won't. I won't share them with anybody. He says you can't share them with anybody, because musicians like care about sound. I care about like content, and he's, he's like you can't share them. They're not recorded well enough. So don't just dis- dis- You can use them for personal use, but not for uh, giving out to anybody. And so I said okay. And so I've been I've been listening to Hebrews over the course of the last few months. It's beautiful. I hope he gets it to the quality where he'll share it with us. But along the way, I've been I've been like. Hey, you're a linguist. As I'm going through this, why did you use this one word in the song when this is probably a better word? And, and I've pointed out a couple things. I felt pretty good about myself. He's like, I just didn't notice that, but that's a really good point. So we'll see if he changes it. Um, I think it has to sound right, but I don't know. But as we've been dialoguing, one of the texts on this verse, I want to read with you. I wish I had an Australian accent to make it more authentic. But concerning verse 22... This is what he writes. This verse seems to be the reason why he argued his way through chapters 1 through 9. But I think this is his main point which would have hit would have hit home with his Jewish audience and sounded revolutionary. Since Jesus made a perfect sacrifice and now cannot die and thus his sacrifice and priesthood will be sufficient forever let us therefore step into the holy of holies behind the curtain where only the high priest can go once a year and let's approach the unapproachable god confidently because of what jesus has done he uses this word revolutionary because it would be revolutionary for a jewish person to think this way i see dave there dave was on the last trip to israel i don't know if anybody else was on the last trip to israel but i don't worry Dave was there. So we had a fant- I mean, they're always fantastic, but we had an experience that kind of got my, like, uh, adrenaline going, because I got a little bit worried, because I'm kind of like the mom of the group. I got to take care of everybody, <laughs> and, and there's, uh, often there'll be situations where I'm concerned, but it's like, no, no, we're safe, we're good, and inside I'm, like, freaking out, going, what is happening right now? Like... uh And so we were on the Temple Mount, the the Golden Dome area, and we were close to the Golden Dome. And if you're looking south, the southern wall today is a mosque. It's the Alaska Mosque. And so we were standing there, and when we went up there that day, there were a bunch of Muslim women outside of the mosque, and there were a bunch of men on the inside of the mosque, but the women were outside of the mosque praying. And as we got up by the, the Dome of the Rock, all of a sudden... I started hearing cries that sort of got me nervous and the cry was Allah Akbar over and over and over again. And I'm like, this isn't good. I see the IDF basically getting their weapons and sort of like go into the area and I can see it's contained, but I, I hadn't quite figured out what was going on. You you don't forget this incident, do you, Dave? <laughs> it's like, we were all like, oh, okay. So finally, they're there. I mean, they are standing. They're not like crossing this invisible line but they are screaming, Allah Akbar, over and over and over again. And I finally, I look at our, our tour guide and I say, I, I can't figure out what's going on. He says, "Gunner, look, look over there on the, on the edge. You see that group of about six people walking, surrounded by IDF guys? I said, yeah. And he's like, That's, those, are, those are devout Jews that have special clearance from Israel to enter. And you'll see what they do is they walk the perimeter and they slowly pray around the perimeter of of, of the the area. I say, are they not allowed to come in the center? He's like, no, they're allowed to go wherever they want in here. But the thing is, because we, we believe that the Dome of the Rock is where the holiest of holies was, we don't really know. There's a couple of debates over where it could have been. And so they walk the perimeter of the Temple Mount for fear that they might, accidentally step on the location where the holiest of holies some 2,000 years ago was actually located, and it would be a dreadful thing for them to actually step on the holiest of holies, even though it's no longer the holiest of holies 2,000 years ago. And so as I studied this passage, that is the closest thing I can imagine that these readers were going through. The author saying, come, enter. And not this one. This is just a replica. You can enter the holiest of holies. This is radical. This is revolutionary. And the author says, "You have there's confidence here. Jesus' blood was sufficient. He's saying, come, enter in. Come, you're welcome. He's inaugurated this new covenant. I do want to make a, a quick comment on this very last phrase uh, where he says, evil consciences is in our bodies washed with pure water. He's not speaking of baptism. But in some respect, he's speaking of what baptism symbolizes, if that makes sense. Since we are having a baptism class, if you've never had been baptized and you're a Christian, I would urge you to follow the Lord in obedience in baptism. Baptism is a symbol. I have a wedding ring on. Put my wedding ring there. Am I still married? I've done this a bunch of times. I'm, we all know Gunnar is still married. Just because I took my wedding ring off doesn't make me unmarried. But I put my wedding ring back on, I'm just as married as I was before. Um, baptism isn't any like water baptism; it's a symbol, but what it symbolizes is something greater than the actual experience. It symbolizes what he's talking about here. So, symbolize uh, what it symbolizes. Baptism it, it it symbolizes the experience that occurred with you in your life following. You're believing in Jesus. We're told in Ephesians one thirteen that the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. You were washed clean. You were new. Nothing could have happened externally. There could, like, I felt the same. Some people have experiences. But theologically, we know when the Spirit comes within you, you're sealed. You're, uh, you're washed clean. Now, baptism is a picture of that going under the water. Symbolizes death. It symbolizes your uniting uh, to Jesus on the cross. It, it, it's symbolizing what you've done and it's a demonstration to the world. And then when you come up, it symbolizes new life in Christ. You're declaring to the world that I've decided to follow Jesus and my old life is dead, and I have a new life in him, and I'm going to live differently. This this is what I think walking the aisle. In traditional churches, is baptism is that public declaration. But that's enough on that. So we come to our second lettuce. So since we have access, since we have a great high priest, let us draw near, enter in. You can approach God. He desires you to walk closely with him. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, I want to stop on this word, uh, hold fast the confession, Um, hold your place in Hebrews 10. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 14, I've already read this to you, the word confession is used three times in Hebrews, so... Back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we read already, but I'll read it again. This is the very uh, mirrored passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If you, on my page, I just have to look over, but over in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house now turn with me over to 1 corinthians chapter 15 i want to answer this question or identify the source of this confession they're told over and over again to hold fast to this confession so the question is, is what is the confession in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes his letter. He starts in verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which you have also received, and which you also, which you also stand, by which you also saved. If you hold fast, there's that same idea, hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So verses 3 and 4, I believe. Or the confession. It is the confession. I believe and others believe. The confession is the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ had died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. So he says this is the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins, for my sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose according to the scriptures. When you hear according to scriptures, that means according to prophecy. And then he lists from verse 5, we don't have time to look at it. Uh, 5, verse 5, maybe down to 10. He lists all the people that at the time of his writing that witnessed the resurrection, Christ testifying to the truth. I mean, we're... Uh, he lists 500 who, individuals who would have been men. If you talk about women and children that saw the risen Christ, the number would grow exponentially. But now I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 10. So let us hold fast the confession. What's a confession? It's the gospel. The, the the core of Christianity is the gospel, that Jesus did what you cannot do. What did He do? He died for you. His sacrifice. It was once and for all. It was sufficient. So the confession is the gospel. Jesus died. Our only hope is Jesus' work on the cross. He was our substitute without wavering. So we're holding to the gospel. Why would somebody waver about the gospel? Well, we're told at other places in the scriptures that the gospel is foolishness to man. And so to say, I'm Gunnar. I am a born-again Christian. My life has been redeemed by this Jewish man some 2,000 years ago who lived a perfect life and he went to his death willingly on a cross and his death on the cross, my life was placed upon there in the father's eyes and that by believing I'm given new life, I'm transformed. That's foolishness if you're a (laughs) non-believer. And when there's persecution, which there was persecution, there are people who are professing this, who are being thrown in jail, whose land was being taken, who were being cut in two. Do you think you might waver? Those seven questions I read at the beginning, do you you think there are Christians in the world that might waver about holding fast to the confession? He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why can we do this confidently? For he, the father who promised, is faithful. The father spoke his word. God's word is immovable. He said it. It's true. He tells us that Jesus's work on the cross was sufficient. His sacrifice was worthy. So regardless of what the culture, or society, or anything tells us, we know that God told us that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. You're a rotten sinner. Dave reminds me all the time. I'm wicked, horrible. Uh, like, who am I that I'm standing here? Who am I that God would be so kind to me? I know how terrible I am. And Satan starts putting thoughts in my mind. It's like, yeah, I did a bunch of terrible stuff. But you know what? I'm told My confidence isn't in what I did. My confidence is what he did. Amen? I'm a rotten, wicked sinner. I'm a terrible guy. But Jesus died for me. And I have hope because God is faithful. Okay, for time's sake, let's move on to the lettuce number three. This one is my favorite one. I mean, this is Michael Nichols has been teasing me ever since I started. I told you he's not a pastor. He's like, oh, pastors love that one kick him in the pants, tell him to come to church. If you're not in church, and get in church kind of thing. That's, he, that's that's my paraphrasing of what he told me, why pastors love it. But I actually had a radical discovery this week in this passage, which I do like because going to church is good. I think gathering is important. There's biblical validation for it. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly, assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, before we get into the actual let us uh, part, or the, the the three things that are really listed there, the to love, to do good deeds, um, really there's the idea of encouraging that happens in the uh, assembling of one another. But he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. So, so the command seems to be like, let us consider, let us ponder, let us think about how we can stimulate one another to do certain things. Now, the the fascinating thing is this word stimulate. I'm like, oh, what does the word stimulate mean? So, so the very first clue you go to is in the Greek. I find the Greek word, and then you figure, how is this Greek word used in English in other places in the New Testament or the Septuagint, which would include the Old Testament, and so This word is a fascinating word. It's only used two times in the whole of the Bible. Not only sometimes is that not helpful, because then you go to to extra biblical sources, like Koine Greek during that time, how was it used with the writings that we have? It wasn't so much confusing that it didn't give much shedding of of light over this word. The the thing is is that the shedding of light is so different than what I would have expected. We're not going to turn there, but the other place... That this word is used. It's used in Acts 15, verse 39. And so the story goes, just kind of catching you guys up to speed. You know, the, the, the gospel's going forth, Paul rises up, Paul goes on a couple of missionary journeys. You come to Acts 15, as Paul's bringing in all of the Gentiles into this Jewish faith. The question then becomes like, how Jewish do Gentiles have to become to to be welcomed into the, the the body of Christianity, which was Judaism? And so they have this big conference, and the big issue was is circumcision. And like, how do we handle circumcision? And they, they they what's referred to as the Jerusalem Council. They they say, okay, they don't have to be circumcised, but there was like a list of three things, like like. Don't smack your gum during synagogue. It's not what they said, but there's a list of three things like, okay, you don't have to get circumcised, but can you please be considered on these three other issues? Paul's very excited. He says, we got to go back and let them know they don't have to be circumcised because every guy's going to be excited about this. And, and so he gets his team to go on the, the missionary journey. He grabs Barnabas and he says, okay, pack your bags. We're going. I got the letter. Let's go. Barnabas says, okay, I'm going to go let John Marco." And everything screeches to a halt. This is the greatest biblical argument that me and my wife have over... Who was right and who was wrong in this situation? Paul says, Barnabas, he is not coming with us. Don't you remember that last trip that we were on and he bailed on us? Nobody knows why he bailed. He could have gotten sick, he could have gotten afraid. Something could have happened. He was a young kid. Barnabas says, Paul, don't you remember when you first came into the faith? Everybody was afraid of you. Like, you were killing us. <laughs> he quit on a mission trip. You killed us. You arrested people. I was the guy that helps you kind of get situated with the church over a course of a decade or so. He bails out on the last missionary journey and you don't have enough grace. Um, so we're told that in the midst of it, at the peak of it, that they had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways. The word stimulate is that word sharp Disagreement. <laughs> So what do I do with this? You could translate this to spur, like on a horse, like spurs, kick. I'm going, is this a biblical support to kick y'all in the pants? Maybe. To stir to anger is another way you could translate this word. To provoke incensed irritation. So let us consider how to irritate one another, provoke one another, spur one another on. Most of the times everywhere, it's used in a very negative sense, like sharp disagreement. In this case, it seems to be used in a positive element. The, 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 the best translation that I would probably use here is, let us consider how to fire one another up. In, in our family, there's Four of us that have become goals fans in the absence of the chargers um, we've embraced hockey and that's where our elite, elite allegiance lies now and it doesn't take long uh, when we're loading up the family you know, as kids go to the back almost every time we get in the minivan giddings in the back and i see the fist go up and he's like let's go goals and it spreads like wildfire then before you know it, the whole van's cheering. Let's go! Goals! Except for two, Ellie and Anna, are like, this is obnoxious. Stop it, please. And we're chanting, we're chanting. And it's kind of like the, hey, let's get motivated. Let's go. As a SEAL instructor, there was always a time. It happened when I went through training, and I saw it multiple times as an instructor um, during Hell Week. It's an evolution. It's one evolution that starts Sunday and it goes to Friday, and they're given four hours of sleep, and it's just sheer, um, it's sheer torture. I mean, it's, there's no other way. The, the class goes from 130 people down to about 20 or 30 people. Um, but we always know as instructors that we've crossed the line in the sand. We know that we've accomplished what we want to see. It normally happens Wednesday night, somewhere between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. And what happens is we'll find somebody, little Johnny, and we'll say, Johnny, you just did something. I don't we'll make something up. You take somebody and you go to the surf zone and you go get wet and sandy. So they go, they have to jump in the water, then they have to roll in the sand. It's, mis- it's miserable. But what will happen about Wednesday during the middle of the night is we'll say, Johnny, go get wet and sandy. And the whole class their chest to the instructor staff and they say if johnny's going we're all going and the whole cra- class like takes off to the surf zone to get wet and say which is like the last thing you want to do and we instructors are yelling we're gonna beat you down and we chase him down we make life miserable and they keep you can't hurt us we don't care we've been up since wednesday what are you gonna do to us we're not quitting we're not going away and you're not dividing us and we we give it to them but we're back on yes yes they're together it doesn't matter what we bring them they're not quitting they're not letting each other go and that's exactly what he's telling us to do let us consider how to fire each other up let us consider how to run the race how to get on board with what god's doing don't worry about the persecution let us consider how to love one another what did jesus say at the last supper They're sitting around in John 13, 34. He says, I have a new commandment that I am going to give to you. The new commandment is that you love one another. And if you love one another, I don't care what comes your way. If you're able to love one another, the world out there will know you're of me. Love one another. That was those were the those were the two words that John tradition holds said to like he was an old dying man and he would they they say they would bring him to the front of the congregation and they'd set him down and he would just in a soft voice say love one another little children love one another love one another because the ability to demonstrate love reflects that we're not of this world he then says to to, to love and good deeds to serve one another not forsaking our assembling together, which I I think leads into the fifth warning. Christianity following after Jesus is not a lone ranger's game. It's not about just you and God. When you accept Christ, you become part of a community. He wants you to be grafted into the local body. He's given you a gift to edify the body. He wants you to use it. The body needs you. You need the body. And to pull away from the body because of whatever reason, in their case, fear, They were being sawn in two. Their properties were being taken away. So he says, "Don't, don't let fear, because remember, you have confidence to enter the throne of God. You have a great high priest. It doesn't matter what they do to you. You have him and he has you, as we sung earlier. This is encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know if you guys have been wondering about this picture behind me. Anybody recognize the picture behind me? There was one person. Oh, two people. I'm going to call on Rachel. What is this picture behind me? Let's see if you got it. You're exactly right. So what's that? Florida. So this, uh, yeah. So in so in July, a couple months ago, July 11th, 2017. 17, there was the, this is a story from the Huffington Post. Um, beachgoers along the shores of Panama City and Florida recently found themselves witnesses to an event as dangerous as it was inspiring. While playing in the water two boys suddenly became caught up in a rip current and started screaming for help. Understandably the boys mother jumped in the water to save them only to get caught herself. One by one more family members came in after the group, only to face the same predicament. After just a short time, the spectacle and shouts had attracted a number of onlookers. There was a guy in the water saying, man, they're all stuck out there. The tides pulled them out. I tried to go out. If I go any farther, I'm going to get stuck, said witnesses Derek Simmons. But luckily, Simmons' wife, Jessica, did some quick thinking and gathered the help. Gathered the help. I lost my place here. Jessica's wife did some quick thinking and gathered the help of those around them and began instructing the people to grasp arms and wade into the sea as a human chain. Anchored to the safety of the shore, as many as 80 people worked together in this fashion and after a stressful few minutes successfully pulled the swimmers to safety. It was the most remarkable thing to see. Jessica Simmons told reporters, These people who don't even know each other and they trust each other, that much to get them to safety. And I think the point of this, or why I showed this, is this picture is such a powerful illustration of what the church is to be like. We're dependent upon God, and we are interdependent among each other. We need you, and you need the church. Like, we need each other. It's God's design. This isn't a place just to come and to drift, like, God wants us, and over the years of my being at this church, I've been so blessed. My my background is from a much larger church, like where I came to Christ, and then to have the pleasure of serving in this capacity at a small church, to see how needs are met, to see how love is manifested, there... I'm at a loss for words it's not anything I orchestrate it 's what the Spirit of God does amongst us when you're connected and you fall into hard times to see the body who knows you because you're connected respond It's beautiful and to receive that kind of love and care it, 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 words don't express it, and it's hard to receive. To to give in that way is a beautiful thing, but to receive it is an overwhelming experience. And so we close today with the two truths. Since we have confidence to enter, let us enter. Since we have a great high priest, let us enter in. Let us hold fast to the confession of the gospel and let us, not me, let us fire one another up for living for him. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these two great truths that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. It was complete. It was whole. Every one of my sins, past, present, and future, has been paid for by him. There is nothing for me to do in regards to my salvation other than to simply believe. We thank you that through his sacrifice, we have been washed clean, that our consciences are pure. Father, we pray that as we enter into your presence, that we would be quick to confess our sin because we still have this flesh that holds us back. We ask that you would help us to become sensitive to your voice. Father, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to the confession of the gospel in this day and age and trying to seek popularity and coolness and crowds, it's easy to compromise things, and so Lord, we ask that as a church, you would keep us grounded in the gospel, grounded in the word of God, grounded in your teaching. And Father, we pray that as we grow in our understanding of you, that we would encourage one another, that we would kick each other in the pants, that we would fire each other up that we would be compelled to love, even when it's difficult, we would be compelled um, to serve one another, that we would compelled be compelled to be here, to encourage one another as we wait for the day of your coming. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.